0: hospital perspective, we've been seeing the the cases at least increase in the Columbus area. And I work for several hospitals in the Columbus area. And surgeon after surgeon, doctor after doctor saying, at least 90% of the people here are vitamin D deficient. There's so many links to the level of improvement that they've seen when people who have been taking vitamin D. At least I don't have the background that you guys have in regards to addiction and stuff like that. But from the uh, hospital perspective, it's understated how many people are coming in overdosing constantly and then needing some type of treatment and their levels of deficiency, whether it be from not properly getting enough nutrients or, I know I heard, I actually heard a lot of people saying they can't eat the way they used to because they don't have enough money because they weren't given enough money. So they're used to just going out and getting whatever fast food they can quickly grab. When those type, when that, you know, that poor diet couples with, you know, health related illnesses or we're in a COVID type of situation, it just compounds the issues that would lead to a better outcome within the hospital.
1: Yeah, actually, I want to hop on real quick and just go off of that point that uh, Scott made originally about uh, seeking help. And that was huge. That was the biggest step I could have uh, taken because, you know, for the first, you know, year or two um, of my sobriety, you know, I was just stubbornly uh, independent. Uh, you know, I can do this uh, myself with, you know, some of the coping mechanisms that uh, we discussed, you know, exercise, you know, journaling meditation, deep breathing, all those things, you know, were effective, but I I felt like at a certain point, you know, I was missing that last five or 10%. And I'm thinking, you gotta you gotta reach out, you know, and talk to other people. Um, You know, I didn't necessarily go to groups, which, you know, I regret, you know, I'm I'm still sober today, uh, almost six years. um, But I wish I would have done things like that. I still can. But really, you know, just going to, uh, you know, counseling, found this uh, really great uh, licensed social worker, I went to talk to, Without divulging too much, I had a pretty bad uh, breakdown towards the end of 2016. Um, I was in grad school, barely got through, wasn't sleeping. I just think that was a culmination of me just really not taking care of myself the first two years. I basically um, gave up drink without really working on myself fundamentally, you know, to the core. So I was basically dry and just not doing anything about it. So I think that was just huge. Um, That resonated with me um, when Scott said, you know, really, I need help is really like the three most important words you can say if you are um, suffering from whatever it is, mental health issues, um, drinking, drug use. And uh, that, you know, might be a little bit trickier with with everything going on now. Um, I'm really glad I was able to do that a couple of years ago instead of, you know, let's say I get to this point this year, still haven't sought out any help. I'd have to get a little bit more creative um, this year to try to find that help, see what kind of avenues I can, you know, travel down as far as who I could see, what kind of groups I could join, you know, use whatever the internet um, to my disposal. But yeah, I mean, that was just such a turning point for me um, in my recovery. You know, it it would be a lot more challenging um, this year if I was going through that process.
2: You know, Scott said earlier something about the stigma. Do you think that last five percent, where you needed somebody
1: else, do you think the stigma kept you from seeking that initially? Yeah, I would definitely say so. I was kind of just, you know, um, ashamed of, um, you know, not being able to uh, control my drinking. Cause I have friends, they can drink socially. And I think Scott said something. He's like, you know, I, I can't stand those people who can just have a couple beers here and there and just, and just leave it. You know, that was never really my mentality or I guess how I was wired. I don't know if that kind of sounds cliche, but I always thought, you know, if two feels good, you know, eight's going to feel better. So, I mean, once I got sober, I think, you know, that stigma definitely was there as far as just seeking out that help. I think it's also just me, just like I said, just being stubbornly independent. That was a part of it. But I also think there was a shame factor there as well. Just, you know, how people would react to me seeking help because I have chosen, you know, to give up drinking and now I'm living sober. So yeah, I would definitely say that was a part of it.
3: So I wanted to turn it over to you guys and see if there was anything that you thought, you know, any big topics or aspects of this this pandemic within the pandemic that we haven't touched on yet. We've covered on a lot of, you know, big topics, mental health, suicidality, and, you know, drug use in general, overdosing, things like that. But I don't know. I just wanted to see if any of you had any thoughts on something that we haven't covered that you think needs saying.
4: I'd like to, uh, it's interesting, you know, we're always, we always seem to be looking to the government to fix stuff. This is one of those things, this is a health issue. I, and I remember when the issue around cigarettes, I was a big cigarette smoker, and I'm sure you all know this, but, you know, they the, finally, the Surgeon General put that warning on cigarette packs. I, I think it was the 80s when that happened. I'm not really sure. It might have been, you know, as late as the 90s but according to science i mean the tobacco companies knew back in 19 i think in the 70s that tobacco caused lung cancer the reason all this was being discussed a couple of years ago is when when the argument about legalizing marijuana that the forecasters said that the marijuana issue in 10 more years or so cuz there's no longitudinal studies yet around long term use of this you know the powerful marijuana and all, we haven't even talked about vaping it today and with kids but at the end of the day when you think about it, the science is there, but, it's, but we, we still do what we do. So to me, it's the informed person who is hopefully going to make, uh, you know, and I'm just listening to you guys. I'm irritated because now I'm frustrated that I have put this weight on. And, you know, and I'm trying to think about what I'm going to do tomorrow morning. I'm going to get up and walk just to price off, you know, because I think it's important. And uh, I, I don't need to call my doctor because if I call my doctor, I know what they're going to tell me. What, you're not fruits, vegetables? You, you promised us. We have it in the chart. They like to keep my chart there because they, they think I'm a good example of what not to do to show, <laughs> show the seniors when they come in. But I think it's just, you know, how do we inform people? And I don't, I don't think we found a good way to do that yet, you know. And I, I'm working with the, um, the Board of Education. I got a call last Sunday night from a colleague of mine who sits on the board, and he says, Scott, we have a half a million kids going back to school tomorrow. We really need your help. And I'm like, really? It's nine o'clock on a Sunday night. You want help with a half a million kids? Anyway. And you know, and there's been so much focus on getting kids back into school and and giving them that opportunity to socialize and have that, you know, and and give the parents a break so they can get back to work. I mean, it's it's a I said a perfect storm earlier. I don't know if that's even the appropriate phrase anymore. So I just I I, how do we inform people? That's that's one of the most you know, and, and you know. Just say no to drugs. That was the worst campaign that ever ever, ever experienced. And I think that we, we have to find a better way. And I say we, I'm not even sure what that means because I don't want to rely on government anymore. I, I just, I think that if the more we look to someone else to tell us what we should be doing, the longer we're going to keep doing what we're doing. And you know that definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results.
2: The stigma, I, for me, Scott, my belief is that the stigma is where we need to start. We need to get rid of that stigma. And Portugal did an amazing job of that. A lot of people use Portugal. A lot of the libertarians that I know like to talk about Portugal. Oh, they legalized drugs. No, they didn't actually. But they did remove the stigma. And they did get to a point where they focused more on the rehabilitation rather than the criminalization. And that's where we need to go. We've got to get rid of the stigma. We've got to make it understandable to have an addiction to the mainstream. Once the mainstream, once once the normal person recognizes that it can happen to any of us, then it's no longer going to be a problem to seek help. It's not about putting out a just say no players or a just say no campaign. I I actually bought into that growing up. And for me, it did make a difference. I liked being a part of that. But I was the anomaly. The truth is there. The the numbers are there. It never worked for the the masses. It didn't work. You're right, Scott. But the fact is, none of that is going to make a difference if somebody is over here in the corner saying, yeah, I don't want anybody to know. We need them to be able to say, to be able to raise their hand and say, hey, you know what, I I think I might actually have that problem that that everybody's talking about.
4: Bryce, finish the story. What was the outcome in Portugal? Because it's funny, I was thinking about that earlier, but what was the outcome when they did all that?
2: I don't have the numbers in front of me. It was many years ago that I looked at it, but I, I do know that they had a tremendous success in changing the addiction to the point where people were rehabilitating and not just trying to go around the corner and
4: hide. The numbers I've read is they reduced substance use disorders by almost 30%. So if you think about that 15% in our, our country and 30%, you know, four and a half, almost 5% or five points, that would be, you know, you're talking about what, 5% of the of the population? What is that? I don't know, uh, 15 million? Yeah, 15 million less people that would have the issue just based on that, you know this must, that's the wrong number, but imagine if we could drop it by a point. And so, no, they were very successful. And I've heard a lot of different people, you know, from scientists to the professors who study this, that if we could do something like that, but and what is it? Our The U.S. has something like 4% of the population on the planet, and we consume something like 70% of the illicit drugs in the world. So- that would be an interesting paradigm shift, and I would, I would I would venture to think that if we tried something like that, we would we would have to be prepared because the first couple of years, people would take advantage of it, but at the end of the day, I mean, um, again, I, I I ran a nonprofit. profit I worked with people coming out of jail and prison, and probably close to 70% of the people who got arrested in our country in the last 20 years, it was behind substance abuse, whether the distribution of or the drug-seeking of or the consumption of, and we have these people in prison who, you know, they're not getting any help, and when they come out, they the same needs when they went in the difference is they suffer from a higher level of criminogenic thinking so i think our our prison system's starting to shift a little bit but you know the fact that we have some interesting controversy at leadership level right now in our country and um we have a congressman coming on to our uh, event next month soap we call it society of addiction professionals and i bring these people around because i want them to hear from the providers you know, exactly what you just said, you know, what can you do to help us if nothing else? And how can we help each other and the disenfranchisement of legislative leaders, unless there's someone, you know, like a, was it Patrick Kennedy, you know, who's, who's experienced it. And I was just on a zoom call with the mayor of Boston who openly talked about his recovery. Um, And that's starting to happen now. We didn't see that 10 years ago. You wouldn't see public figures. And now all these movie stars, Eminem just, you know, announced that he got 12 years and that was on social media. And I can't remember some of the others that have come out recently, but it's, it's, uh, it's starting, but it's so slow. The, the my opinion, extrapolate the data over the next 10 years. It's going to, you know, we may have a, maybe a half a 1% improvement. But to me, that would be tremendous when you look at our population and the morbidity rate. But you're right. The stigma, unfortunately, is not going to change very easily. There was somebody just on the news the other night talking about, you know, that's ridiculous. They just need to stop. You know, if, if it was that easy, we would. I mean, it's an allergy. I mean, I can't drink because I'm allergic. alcohol. I think it's Robert Downey Jr. who says it best. Whenever I did cocaine, I always broke out in handcuffs.
3: (laughs) You
4: know, Um,
3: I was hoping, you know, on this topic of normalizing it and increasing awareness and education on the the fact that addiction isn't just solely a choice and isn't just something that, well, you can just stop and, and things like that. Um, Kent, I was hoping that you could give just a kind of broad brief overview of the brain side of addiction and the impacts that it has on your brain and why the brain model of addiction has come up and is evidence-based and fairly substantiated at this point.
5: Well, I think the brain model of addiction, you know, the notion that addiction is a brain disease it was really a notion that Alan Leshner championed about 25 years ago when he was the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, in part to combat stigma, in part to combat stigma. You know, the notion that it wasn't a moral failing taking of drugs, but that there were identifiable changes in the brain, which there certainly are. Today, there are some a- critics of the brain disease model who say that there's a stigma attached to having brain disease. And so they would like to get rid of that idea for that reason. But that's, that's another issue. In, if we think of brain models of addiction, there's actually several models of addiction, competing theories. Um, there's, there's no question that taking drugs of abuse changes brain dopamine system, suppresses dopamine receptors and suppresses opioid receptors, the withdrawal bases and the... Um, the tolerance basis, this is really a, a big a big part of it. But that was the original brain disease model. And, and the problem with it is that it's clear that addiction doesn't go away when withdrawal goes away. If you stop taking drugs, the the brain, many of the brain changes that accompany heavy use, they begin to recover, many of those changes, yet the addiction doesn't necessarily go away. So the debates today, there's arguments in addiction neuroscience Um, Whether it's to be thought of as a kind of an intensified habit, because there are habit brain systems that um, drugs act on, the dorsal striatum, or whether it should be thought instead of a kind of craving. And our incentive sensitization theory always has suggested that it was a kind of craving. It's a kind of craving that any of us could have for things like food if we were starved enough. But in addiction, the neural sensitization changes sort of create this starvation type appetite specifically for drugs and creates that same kind of situation that we would all be in if we were starving and craving food. If an addict can crave drugs in this way, then it creates a situation I think that could call forth sympathy. You know, I think that's the hope in the brain disease model that uh, stigma could be replaced by a kind of sympathy. But there are debates.
3: Yeah, I think that it's definitely been a heated conversation for a long time about whether or not addiction is a disease and everything. I remember when we had, I'm blanking on what class, it. I think it was abnormal psychology. Yeah, abnormal I psychology.
0: I abnormal, remember. And uh, I think it was cognitive cognitive, um, neuro as well.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it came up in both of those. And I remember in, especially in abnormal psychology, they asked specifically, she polled the class basically, and asked, do you think addiction is a disease or not? And it kind of surprised me the number of students in the class that sided with it not being a disease. And even after we discussed it at length in the class and, and talked about both sides of it, that there was still a a substantial segment of, of the class that didn't agree. And I think that you see that on a large scale in, in the country, right? That these are people that even in a college psychology class, you see this split. I'd imagine the general public that split is even larger.
5: Well, only to be fair to the anti-brain disease folks, I mean, there are there are legitimate arguments that they make, um, such as that uh, being an addict, it's it's not compulsive in the sense that it can never be controlled. Um, it, it is still subject to punishments and incentives and such, um, but that's the nature of craving, it's, that's the nature of compulsion. I think Scott earlier uh, suggested that addiction is a little bit like diabetes, and I think that's a great analogy because that's a disease in which there's no holes in the brain, there's no holes in the body, type two diabetes, you know, there's no lesions. It's not a disease in the sense of, of damage to the body, but it's a, it's, a, it's a disease in the sense that insulin resistance develops and a couple of small parameters in physiological mechanisms just get altered a little bit with devastating consequences. And it can be partly dealt with by behavioral diet control means. Addiction has a lot of these same similarities. Um, we can identify brain parameters that are different and that are persistently different and that don't go away with withdrawal. When withdrawal goes away, if you don't take the drugs for a long time, these changes still stay in and they have these kinds of changes. The last, I'll throw in just one last thought. I once heard an argument in the courtyard of the Dalai Lama's monastery in the Himalayas. It had been a meeting on craving and it was an argument between Uh, Nora Volkal, who's the current director of the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, and Mark Lewis, who's a uh, critic of the brain disease model um, and has written books and published many articles in the New York Times and other papers around the world criticizing brain disease. And Mark was saying to Nora, don't call it a brain disease. Why do you call it a brain disease? These changes in the brain, they're so subtle, they're not holes in the brain. And Nora, I think, made a good a good counter reply that's specific to the United States and our medical system for providing helping funds for um, treatment and research into addiction. She said, if it's not a brain disease, Congress isn't going to fund any kind of addiction research or addiction treatments and insurance companies, medical insurance companies are not going to pay for any kind of a treatment. If it's a disease, it becomes eligible for treatment in the American system. And that's, uh, it's not a scientific point, But it has a certain compelling quality to it, to me.
4: Well, when you look at the uh, economic platform that we have in our country, that makes a lot of sense. Zach, do do you think it's a disease? Let's make a little bit of a political reversal on you, since you're the expert here, so from what you've learned. Because, you know, as the Surgeon General, I believe it was three years ago, finally came out and said it. Uh, after decades of study. And, you know, my attitude is it doesn't really matter, but because if it's a problem, it, let's help fix it. If, it. if it, you know, look, I, my wife likes Canterbury milk chocolate bars and I watch what happens to her when I bring one home. And, you know, if you were to eat any chocolate, I mean, we love C's too, but now you have to get it delivered, but you know, this would be a great time. I'm just glad I, I don't act out on C's candy. Cause I can imagine I, you know, I wouldn't be on camera. It'd be awful but if you eat chocolate every single day, look, talk to people, drink coffee. Hey, it's time for you to stop putting caffeine in your body. What? You go through withdrawal. So I think that, you know, I, I, and I love the conversation, but at the end of the day, I, I personally, I, I try not to take a political position. It's just simply, if you drink too much and too much is generally defined as three to five drinks a day on a regular basis, you might, Potentially have a problem with that, meaning it could be impairing other parts of your life. But do you have a disease, or do you just abuse it? I don't know. So Zach, what's your position? You know, because you're obviously, you know, you're the you're the new generation that's been studying. What has been your conclusion to that discussion? So my personal opinion
3: is that it is a disease. Um, I think that it's like you've both discussed um, on some level. I do think it's different than a lot of other diseases, and that plays into a lot of the debate. You know, one that I hear often is that you choose the initial use, right? You choose to take drugs initially, and so that doesn't make it a disease. Um, And I think that I understand where that perspective comes from, but I do think that that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a disease. Like diabetes, I I agree with Kent that that's a fantastic comparison. Um, That you may not choose, or you may you may not choose to get diabetes, but you, you know, you choose your diet and your exercise level. And that's a huge contributing factor into whether or not you develop diabetes later in life. And obesity is another example that is admittedly fairly controversial with some on whether or not it should be considered a disease, but is something that for a lot of people, it involves a voluntary choice to again, eat more or exercise less. And then, you know, that leads to obesity in comparison people aren't going around asking people to sneeze in their face right or or shoveling bacteria into their into their mouth to induce a, a disease right so that voluntary aspect isn't there but i don't think that necessarily means that it isn't a disease i'm glad kent brought up the the aspects of it with insurance uh, because i think that on a non scientific but just i don't know realistic level if we want to help people, if we want to get people the help that they need, like you were saying, Scott, I, I think that it's not impossible, but much harder to do that if it's not listed as a disease. This has come up uh, with mental health in general too, You know that the kind of double-edged sword of stigmatization of you know labeling something like depression or anxiety or any of these things a disease or a disorder because on the one hand it stigmatizes it and leads to potentially negative associations with the person you know if if they think that oh well now there's quote unquote something wrong with me that i have this diagnosable disorder or this diagnosable disease but on the other hand it allows them to get treatment it allows them to get help you know because insurance companies aren't going to pay for it if it's not so yeah i guess broadly my stance is that it is a disease i know that it's different From many other diseases and there's still a lot of research that needs to be done to better understand it but yeah i think that personally i would consider it a disease
2: zach this is bryce i want to caution everybody who's listening from diving too deep into whether or not it's a disease and here's why medically and and with the government yes it's a it's a big question and it needs to be answered eventually But when it comes to addiction and whether or not you have an addiction and whether or not you need to do something about it and how and what that is, it doesn't matter whether it's a disease or not. You still have a problem. And I'm not saying you do, but if you do, you still have an issue. It still has to be addressed. And we have to know how and why. And right now, there are ways, whether it's diagnosed as a disease or not we have the ability to help. The problem with our society right now, going back to the stigma, is that too many people are busy debating about whether or not it's a brain problem or a morality problem. And the people that are out there having this debate, a whole lot of them are focused on that morality, thinking that somehow it's just gonna magically disappear if everybody understands that morally, we just need to stop. And that's just not the case. And we, when we talk about it publicly, as whether it's a brain disease or a morality disease, I think we just give ammunition to that. Let's just stop focusing on that and get people to recognize that there is an epidemic throughout the United States of people abusing and, and using substances that don't need to be and we need to figure out how and why and work on that, not whether or not it's a disease. But I'm not trying to take away from the medical issues or anything else. I just wanna make sure that the people listening, look, if you need help, you need help. Don't worry about whether it's a disease or not. And one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this is because I had a breakthrough in my own life. I I told you earlier that I had a knee surgery when I was in the military, I was told that I had some problems with my knees. I had pain and I, it went to my shoulders and I had a whole lot of problem with joints. And I focused so hard on trying to figure out what this unnamed disease was that was causing my joint problems when all I really needed to do was start exercising. I still have pain and I still have problems and there's pro- possibly still a name for whatever it is, but it doesn't matter what the name is. Because I've figured out that if I start exercising and I focus on that and I focus on staying positive, it doesn't hurt as much. So I want the same thing for all the people out there that are struggling. I want you to focus on how can we help you, not whether or not you have a disease.
3: Absolutely. That's a great point. And you know, I think it's important that people just recognize that they, that they need help. You know, you, You're absolutely right. Um, Scott had dropped his number earlier. I wanted to give the listeners one more, just in case anyone listening is going through any of these issues or is having any kinds of pandemic-related spikes in their own drug use or or in general, you know, not related to the pandemic. So the, the number that I wanted to give is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services National Helpline number. And so basically, if you call this number, you can get confidential help. That's free from public health agencies and, you know, and help find some substance use treatment and information. That number, if anyone needs it, is 1-800-662-4357. And so that is another resource that listeners can can tune into and, and give a call if you think that this is a problem that you have Again, regardless of whether or not it's a disease, there are resources out there, and it's important to seek them out. Mike had brought that up earlier, that that is incredibly important. Well, I think everyone at this point has brought up that it's incredibly important, but because it is. While the discussion on whether or not it's a disease is important, especially from the scientific and the political side of things, um, I, I absolutely agree with you that it's not it's not necessarily the most important thing when it comes to, to getting people help.
4: You know, I, I, I wanna agree with that as well. I didn't know what it was for a long time. And when I went into treatment, you know, I, I didn't know anything. I just knew that I was depressed. And when I drank, I wasn't depressed. And, I, and that triggered something for me, you know, and when I when people said, well, you need to stop drinking, I'd stop drinking and I'd start taking cocaine. You know, and you look at gambling, you know, and there's other things and, and uh, sex, the same thing for some people, you know, and there's all kinds of issues around food, but food we have to eat, food we have to eat, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's that going back to that informed piece, you know, for example, if somebody broke their leg, you know, there, there's no way they're going to go, oh, honey, let's get on YouTube and figure out what happened here and we'll, we'll fix it. No, you won't. You're going to go to the emergency department, and they're going to probably take an X-ray. You know, and that's organic. That's what people do. It's the same thing. I mean, if you're finding yourself dependent on anything, uh, relationships or or work, or you know, and it's funny. I remember having this argument one day with somebody who was a triathlete, and they go, "I spend eight hours a day getting to be the best I can be. What else do you do in your life? Oh, I, I eat and sleep." And I remember his uh, significant other called me one day and said, I think he's addicted to physical exercise and he won't stop. Well, that wasn't healthy. And when he, once, once he understood, you know, it was just part of his life. I mean, I go to meetings and there's science that says people go to meetings every week, stand up and introduce themselves as an alcoholic and an addict. And we're that's, that's self reinforcement of negative thinking. I mean, something people think that perpetuates it. So I I agree with Bryce, you know, that if you're listening today, if you're not sure go online there's a quiz you can actually take and if you're not sure you don't like the outcomes of the quiz get on the phone and call somebody find out and especially in this environment and most people they don't start drinking at age three something goes on in their life and that's the untreated trauma i mean i've learned more about that in the last 10 years than i ever had in my whole life and people who suffer a catastrophic event, a loss of a family member, those things can contribute to a lot of behavioral health issues that if not treated will manifest itself in other ways. And when you look at the suicide rate in our country right now, uh, and, you know, and increasingly more, you know, we're just now starting getting ready to serve veterans. We got in network with a provider to help veterans and what they suffer and don't, you know, anything that happens to somebody, if it does, if it goes untreated, it gets worse, not better and you can't just flip a switch and go i'm no longer going to feel sad you know i'm no longer going to feel depressed it just doesn't work that way the the body mind and soul is not not made up we talk about gut health in our treatment a lot and that's you know how do you feel good as a person what does that look like i can remember working with people coming out of prison and we used to have guest speakers come in and go you folks you need to go get an education you got to go back to school so and get a good job you know and they'd leave and we'd decompress and we'd chat it down and debrief and It was fascinating to hear from people who go, I don't even know how to go to school and sign up. So we started putting people in a van, taking them over to the community colleges, hand-holding them, going to the office, showing them how to grab an application, introducing them to the intake person. And then once you give people the tools, most people really appreciate it. Not only do they appreciate it, they want to be independent, but they don't want to ask for help. And I think that that to, me is, that to me is going to be one of the biggest stigma eradicators we can come up with and then making it easy for people to, to ask for help. I mean, our, our emergency rooms are full. And in San Diego, you, you know, there's a wait line now for people that are overdosing and they're on Medi-Cal. They're subsidized by the county. And historically, when they go there, they're not given; in, they're stabilized. They give them three hours, you know, a little IV saline solution, and maybe a Valium and send them on their way. So we're not even treating it Effectively, in my opinion. And I remember having an argument just last week with somebody about the difference between treatment and recovery. So again, I liken it to other things. And there are a lot of different things that we're impacted by as as a human race. And then then there's the hereditary piece. Our parents give us this or that. We're predisposed. It could be cancer. It could be diabetes. It can be, you know, stunting growth. It can be loss of hair. I mean those things obviously don't kill you but they affect people's self-esteem and and they add to some of the shame-based decision-making processes so getting people informed and making it an easy conversation it shouldn't be that hard to say and i agree it shouldn't you know is it a disease not a disease it comes up in conversation and I personally, for me, I believe I have it. My folks had diabetes, there's cancer, skin cancer in my family. So I go to, you know, I go to the dermatologist, to get checked out. I go to the dentist because I wanna you know, prevent it, make sure that I keep my teeth as long as I can. And I wanna dance at my kids' uh, weddings. So that's why I practice some of the things I do. And again, you know, if I can get into, I'll, I don't think I'll ever do a triathlon, but you know, that's okay, I can watch the YouTube videos and uh, assimilate with them. So that's my two cents.
3: I'm hesitantly hopeful that this pandemic will open up the conversation a little more on mental health in general, on addiction, and all these things that we've been talking about. You know, they're, they're things that need discussing, there are things that need saying, and I think this pandemic has given us a great opportunity to bring these issues to light and to talk about them more openly and more freely. Unfortunately, it hasn't been happening, you know, quite as much as it probably needs to, but... But it has been happening more, I think, than it was pre-pandemic, at least for some of these topics. And I'm hesitantly hopeful that that will continue and, and increase over time, especially as we learn more about these things. I wanted to turn it over to you guys again. I just wanted to give you one more opportunity to bring up anything that you think we've missed, anything that you think needs saying that we haven't said. And in addition, if you have anything that you would like to plug as a thank you for contributing to the conversation, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. And, so, and if not, then that's okay, too.
4: Well, I'll go because I have to go make dinner and I was going to have a chicken sandwich, Bryce, but I'll take the bun and I'll save it for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Scott H. Silverman, please call me. And uh, one of our, uh, your guests tonight, when the guys are on with us, uh, give me a call. Let's talk about that you know, your, your future thinking about what's next, if I can be of service and I can always be reached at 619-993-2738 or you know, yourcrisiscoach.com. You can always reach me there. Just Google Scott H. Silverman. And for your listeners, I you know, I I dare people to call me. Uh, And I put my number out publicly all the time, and I'm an SME here in San Diego. And my first book was called uh, Tell Me No, I Dare You. And it was written about how to go from no to yes, because, you know, when you grow up and you're told you can't this or you shouldn't that, you're not smart enough or not tall enough, that contributes to some of the shame-based issues that some of us just, you know, we adopt. And and I learned in my study with my book that 70% of the people that are told no, they stop there. The other 30% will try to, you know, pivot and make a paradigm shift, but only 10% of those will actually go forward with their, you know, their dreams, wishes, and, and hopes. So I really hope that people will call and realize that, you know, this issue we're discussing, it's treatable, there's hope, and there's help out there, and I'm willing to do whatever I can to be part of the conversation. And, you know, I had a busy couple of weeks, and I didn't have to do this today, and I'm, I'm really honored to be part of it, because I think it's important to have the conversation and know that, you know, I can be a resource for anybody, family members. Those who don't understand it, employers, kids, again, 619-993-2738. And I I dare you to call me. I do. Or text me. Thank you guys very much for the opportunity. And good luck to all of those of you who are on the panel tonight. And uh, I appreciate your input and sharing. And I I got motivated tonight with some inspiration. And I hate when that happens, but uh, I'm going to take advantage of it because, you know, you never know who uh, God's speaking through. Thank you.
3: Absolutely. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for joining us and for offering your your expertise and your perspective on all these issues.
2: I'll share. This is Bryce. I mentioned it earlier. I own a travel agency. One of the reasons why I own a travel agency, in many ways, the primary reason, when I left the military, I was lost and I went into a deep depression. I didn't leave of my own accord. I was medically discharged, so I didn't plan to leave. And like many other veterans, I struggled to find myself. I, the military was everything to me and I didn't know anything else. It took me many, many years to understand that one of the things that was missing the most was change. In the military, there was change all around me, all the time, especially with me being in the Navy. I was sailing around the world. I finally found that through personal travels and studying abroad when I went to school and I recognized that that was what I needed for me. That escape, getting away periodically, allowed me to come back home and refocus. So for me, I had to get away and then I could come home and I could get back to work. So. I, I ended up opening a travel agency when the opportunity came and I bought a cruise planners franchise, more than 25 years old, fantastic company. I own the website, www.foodandwinecruiseplanners.com. And I know that's not necessarily appropriate for an addiction podcast, but you know, alcohol is something that a lot of travelers do like. So we do talk about that. I would encourage you, though, that if you ever do need to go for travels and you need somebody who understands, don't hesitate to contact us. My wife and I run the agency together. All you have to do is mention that you're in recovery, and we will take care to make sure that any place we send you is going to be appropriate, and we're not going to encourage you to go places where you might struggle with your addiction. The one other thing that I would tell you is if you do want to just kind of virtually escape, we do a podcast of our own. It is uh, listed at the top of the website. You just have to click on podcast. It's called Travel Tuesdays for Foodie Fans. Again, my name is Bryce and uh, my phone number is 407-454-6336. Thank you.
3: Great, thanks Bryce and thank you Thank you for joining us tonight and for offering your, your expertise and your perspective. It was super valuable and, and great.
5: I have nothing to add, really, except that it's been interesting to listen to the panel members. Uh, thanks, Zach, and good luck to anyone watching.
3: Great, thank you, Kent, and thank you for joining us and offering uh, a little bit of the, the scientific and addiction side of things uh, and explaining the, the brain models to, to our listeners.
4: I'll throw a couple things out there. One, uh, Bryce, I lied. I'm going to have a chicken sandwich. I'm sorry. I thought about it. I'm going to have the bun. Secondly, just so you know, my, my podcast is called uh, Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour. And I named it that because that's when I did most of my biggest drinking was uh, happy hour. And I think it's kind of a spin on stuff. So sometimes we've got to do what we've got to do to market ourselves. So as it starts to grow and get out there. Anyway, I want to echo again that, you know, Zach, what you guys are doing is awesome. Keep it going. And then let me know if I can be a resource for you guys anytime. And that's that's all I'm going to say. I'm done. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me on, Zach, again. It was really, uh, you know, informative. Uh, it was great listening to all the uh, all the panel members. It uh, gave me some things to, uh, you know, think about. And I really want to follow up the disease uh, <laughs> conversation, but that'll be for another time um, just because I'm – Really curious about how all these dynamic factors kind of take play as far as like, um, you know, genetics, social, cultural, you know, things like that. But that'll be a um, follow-up discussion uh, another time with you, uh, with you neuro guys. (laughs) Um, But no, it was was, uh, good to be on. And, uh, you know, I just want everyone to, uh, you know, take care of themselves uh, during this time as we move forward. Uh, That's about it. Thanks for having me on.
3: Absolutely. Thanks for joining us, Mike. As we close, I just wanted to offer you all, everyone who's listening right now, different plugs of our own. Um, So as Mike said, there are definitely things that we haven't touched on in this conversation and that it's impossible to touch on in the short amount of time that we spend talking about these things for this episode and for others. We do have a couple sources that we plan to use to continue these conversations. So we are on social media. We would encourage you to follow us on there. We're on Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and Tumblr. Another place that we are trying to move into is Discord. So Discord is typically a messenger app for gaming, but it provides a really good format for us to continue these conversations. So if you download the Discord app and then message us on any of our social media, we can get an invite link out to you. Basically, we have separate channels set up for every single conversation that we have, every episode. And then hopefully it is still in the works and we're still attracting you know members and, and people to, to discuss these things. But the hope is that that we'll be able to serve as a platform on which we can continue these conversations afterwards and touch on a lot of these things that either we didn't have time for or we didn't go as in-depth as some may... May have liked, and so hopefully we can get that going too. Another thing that I want to ask of our listeners, so we are also on YouTube. Currently we post our videos to to YouTube, and since we're typically audio only, we just have the audio wave up there, but what we are hoping to do in the near future is begin streaming live to YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch, and maybe incorporating video along those lines. So we really want to encourage you to follow us on Twitch and on YouTube so that we can hit the 100 subscribers count on YouTube and the requirements for Twitch so that we can have a custom URL and post recorded video on Twitch. That way we can get these discussions out there to even more people and and spread the word a little further. The last thing I'll say is that we really appreciate all of the support and that we grow most from word of mouth. We are still a relatively new podcast. And because of that, the greatest way for you to help us continue to have these important discussions is to share with a friend that you think would enjoy these conversations that we've had, whether it's this episode or previous ones that we've had. And then that way, they can not only enjoy the discussions themselves and enjoy listening to the podcast, but maybe then have a snowball effect and bring even more people in. Typically these panels aren't the only format that we do. We also have live episodes where we'll talk more broadly about a subject. And instead of bringing in specific people, we open up the floor for the, for discussion for anyone and invite anyone who is interested. And so if anyone is interested in taking part in a live discussion in the future, feel free to email us at saywhatneedsayingpodcast at gmail.com, and we can add you to our invite list. So from there, we'll call it a night. I think we had a fantastic conversation and we touched on a ton of different topics that are super important today and unfortunately not being talked about enough. But one last time just to for our listeners to have the resource, um, the SAMHSA National helpline number for those that need it is 1-800-662-4357. And thank you all for listening. We'll call it there and have a good night. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating.
0: Also, you can follow us on Twitter at SayWhatNeeds and on Instagram and Facebook at Saying for live updates and sound bites from our actual podcast. Don't forget to continue the discussion. Thank you for listening.
3: Thanks.